Welcome everybody to the house of the Lord. It is time for us to jump into the word of God and to hear what the Lord has to say to us. And as we do, uh, let's just take a minute to pray. Father, I just speak your blessing over this, these your sons and daughters. And um, we just agree with uh, that song of worship that whatever you need to move over in our lives, move that over. You can move that over because we desire to give you our undivided attention. We desire to hear your voice and to see your face. So speak to us now by your word and your spirit, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. All right. So I want to talk to you today. I want to talk to you this morning on the subject. Uh, I want to talk to you about the relationship between racism and the gospel. Uh, some of you might be thinking in your heart, when is PB going to get done with this racism stuff and get back to the business of preaching the gospel? Matter of fact, it is very popular, a very popular view uh, today in America uh, that the gospel and racism are two different uh, subjects, that one has to do with uh, social structures and social orders, and the other has to do with spiritual things and the Bible and scripture and so forth. And uh, someone actually wrote me on Facebook and said, um, he's, this person was not a member of our church, but somebody actually wrote a comment and said, the gospel is just about Jesus Christ. It's about him dying for our sins. That's it. It has nothing to do with racism. Stop this racism stuff and get back to preaching the gospel. What I would like to do today is to lay out for you, uh, clearly delineate a definition of the gospel from a biblical perspective. I want us to understand what the gospel is and why you cannot preach the gospel in America without confronting racism. Okay? All right, first of all, I want to say um, that we must distinguish between the gospel itself and the effect of the gospel. The gospel itself and the effect of the gospel. You see, it's very common for us to see the gospel as the message that we are saved through faith in Jesus Christ. No, that is not the gospel. That is the effect of the gospel. Salvation through Christ Jesus, through faith in Jesus Christ, is the effect of the gospel. The gospel itself actually is comprised of three proclamations. And those three proclamations are, number one, Jesus is the Son of God. Number two, Jesus is the Messiah. And number three, Jesus is Lord. Now, if you repent and believe these three proclamations, the effect of believing the gospel is salvation. Salvation is not the gospel. Salvation is the effect of believing the gospel. Okay, are you following me? Now, the thing we've got to realize is that in order to believe the gospel, You've got to repent, which means to acknowledge the contrary lies that you've believed, sorrow for what believing them has caused you to do to yourself and others, diligently renounce them, and replace them with divine truth. Okay? So repentance doesn't save you. Repentance is the removal of that which prevents you from believing. That's why in Mark chapter 1, verse 14, Jesus comes from Galilee preaching the gospel of God. And he makes this announcement that the time has come, the kingdom of God is here. And then he says, repent and believe the gospel, which means repent so that you can believe the gospel. There is no believing the gospel without repentance because repentance removes that which hinders your ability to believe the gospel. 
That is, you cannot believe the gospel when you are simultaneously believing things that are contrary to the gospel. If you believe things that are contrary to the gospel, you are actually refuting the gospel in your own mind and heart. And salvation comes from believing the gospel. And that requires repentance. Are you with me? Okay, acknowledge the contrary lies you've believed. Sorrow for what believing them has caused you to do to yourself and others. Renounce them and replace them with divine truth. All right, now we're going to look at a passage of scripture here in Luke chapter 2, verse 10 and 11. Uh, this is the angel Gabriel, and he's, uh, are, are th these, these angels are visiting uh, the shepherds on a hill that are watching over their flocks by night. And... Uh, what the angel says to them is, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. Now, what's the good tidings of great joy? For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Yeah. Notice that the tidings of great joy are not about the effect, but about the substance of who Jesus is. The tidings of great joy is who Jesus is is yeah. right he says i bring tidings of great joy now first thing uh the word gospel is actually here but you can't see it when he says i bring you good tidings of great joy in the greek if we look at it it says gar euangelizomai humin which literally says for i am gospeling to you good tidings of great joy is the word gospel or, or um, euangelia which means gospel or good news he says i am gospeling to you I am, I, am good, I am good messaging you, uh, good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. So he says, I bring you good tidings of great joy. That is, I gospel to you, which will be to all people. That's literally what he's saying. And then he says, here's the good news. There is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So there's three words here, Savior, Christ, and Lord. First of all, uh, gospeling means brings a, bringing a message of good news. Savior, soter in the Greek, soter, Savior. Christ, Christos, and Lord, kurios. Soter, Savior, Christos, kurios. He says, here's the gospel. Jesus is the Savior, which refers to his sonship. Unto you was born this day. This goes back to uh, the prophet Zechariah who spoke to Bethlehem and he said, but you Bethlehem, you're, even though you're the smallest among the tribes of Judah, yet out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And also the prophet Isaiah uh, cried out, unto us a child is given, unto us a son is born, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. And then upon the throne of his father David to order it and establish it forever for the zeal of the Lord shall perform it. So when you speak of him as Savior, you're actually speaking of him as the Son of God because only God can save. And then when you speak of him as the Christ, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Mashiach, which is Messiah, you're speaking of, of uh, the way in which he will save. And the way in which he saves is through offering his life, his suffering, 
and his death, which goes back, of course, to Isaiah 53. Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And it talks about how he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, but he has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so his messiahship is in his suffering and death. And matter of fact, if you read through the letters of Paul, almost in every place where he speaks of Jesus as the Christ, he speaks of Jesus' uh, suffering and death. And, you know, he says, this is a trustworthy saying, that Christ died. And so when he calls it the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's the gospel about Jesus' suffering and death. So he is first the son of God, and then he is the suffering servant of God, or the Messiah, and then he is Lord. He's Lord, which speaks of his authority and power. There is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And the Lord, his lordship is his authority and his power, his right to rule. And his lordship is why Jesus defines his own coming as the coming of the kingdom of God. He says, uh, the time has come in Mark chapter 1, 14 and 15. The kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe the gospel. So when you're repenting and believing the gospel, you're believing three things. One, you're believing that Jesus is the son of God. Number two, you're believing that Jesus is the Messiah. And number three, you're believing that Jesus is Lord, which means he has the right to rule over your life and my life and over all the earth in all things. Okay? So this is the gospel. The effect of the gospel, on the other hand, is salvation, right? We see this in John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's the gospel. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the effect of the gospel. I want you to see this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. This is the gospel right? That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This is the effect of the gospel. Okay, you got that? Okay, that's my introduction. Now, we've got to get to our initial question, and the question is, why is racism a part of the gospel? Well, I have just two basic reasons why. Uh, first of all, because racism is a sin, and the gospel requires us to repent. That is, if the gospel does not confront sin, or if racism is not a sin, then racism is not related to the gospel. But if racism is a sin, and the gospel confronts sin, then racism is intricately co connected to the gospel. Why? Because in order to believe the gospel, in order to lay hold of the effect of the gospel upon your life, you cannot simultaneously believe what racism teaches us. Yeah. So racism is a sin. But secondly, racism is a heresy. Racism is not just a sin, but a heresy. And in fact, I would argue that there is no greater heresy that has been taught on American soil. No more pervasive, no more prominent, no more poignant, and no more widely believed heresy that has been taught on American soil than the heresy of racism. So we're gonna explore these two ideas, racism is sin and racism is heresy, and we're gonna see a little bit about how the gospel confronts these two things, all right. So first of all, um, 
the prop the reason why most of us so it's it's very popular very popular since the civil rights movement in America to claim that you are not a racist uh, before the civil rights movement people were just openly blatantly racist yeah. right but after the civil rights movement uh, basically uh, racism closeted itself and so you had to be a closet racist and uh, what happened in America after that is people began to claim in, in huge numbers, I am not a racist. Uh, that, that became like the popular, the popular thing to do. Um, and so we're quick to self-exonerate. None of us want to be a racist. Uh, after the civil rights movement, the majority of Americans began to claim not to be racist, but that doesn't actually mean that they're not racist anymore. It simply means that America no longer desires to be called racist. Uh, and there's this, this dichotomy really in America. On the one side of the dichotomy is, don't you dare call me a racist. But the other side of the dichotomy is, but don't you dare confront me with my racist thoughts, words, or actions. Wow. And so I want to self-exonerate. Yeah. And, and really, this attitude, don't call me a racist, and don't confront my racist thoughts, words, or actions, huh. really makes racism a protected sin in the American church. Yeah. Because I can't, I can't call it out, I can't confront it, I can't identify it when I see it. It's the protected sin of the American church. It's the sin we've become highly seeker sensitive when it comes to racism in the American church. And we treat racism as a special sin. We would never do that with fornication. Yeah. If, if somebody had the attitude, I fornicate all the time, but I don't want to be called a fornicator. And don't you dare confront me with my adulterous ways, words, or actions. Right? Like we would be all over that in a second. That that. It's like, well, if you really want to be a believer in Jesus Christ, like if being a believer in Jesus Christ is, is what you're really all about, then you would not have the attitude of do not confront me with my adulterous ways, words, or actions. It doesn't work for any other sin but the sin of racism. Okay? The problem is that the way we tend to define racism is geared towards self-exoneration. We want to quickly self-exonerate. Our goal should be actually self-examination. That is, we should approach racism the way we approach any other sin in America. It's like pride. Um, what if I just walked around all the time saying, I ain't got no pride. Don't you dare tell me I got pride. I got no pride. I don't have any pride at all. Uh, instead of always trying to exonerate myself of having pride, I should have it in my heart and mind that I am capable of pride at any time. That pride is this pervasive reality that all of us must battle. And so if I'm confronted, I, I, my heart is always open for the Holy Spirit to confront me and even for my brothers and sisters to confront me and say, you know, uh, especially uh, those who have rule over my soul, those who have been given stewardship over my soul, to say, I want you to pray about your pride problem. My heart needs to be open to receive that. My heart needs to be vulnerable. But if my goal is self-exoneration, that only proves that I've got pride, right? That only proves that I'm prideful if I'm fighting against it, right? And so in any, with any sin... The vulnerability of our soul must start with the recognition that there's actually no sin that I'm incapable of. Wow. That the heart is wicked above all things. And that apart from walking in the Spirit, I am apt and I have the capacity to fulfill any of the lusts of the flesh. I am not safe from any, any of them. And so my attempt to self-exonerate, I've, I've got to put that to death in order for the Holy Spirit to do a, a work in my soul. But also because racism is so ubiquitous in American culture, we're taught it in schools. Our history books have been whitewashed. Yeah. 
Um, and and we, and it's you know there was a book um, called the the miseducation of the Negro. It's not just the miseducation of the Negro, but it's the miseducation of the American. Uh, all of us have been miseducated when it comes to the realities of racism and, and there's so many different ways I'm not going to get into the I talk deeply about these things in my Thursday night um, uh, Facebook lives and so I would invite you to join me there um, but I will just say that if you have grown up in in not only in the United States of America but any any um, any country that falls under the banner of Western civilization in a sense uh, you've been steeped in racist ideology and you don't even know it. Do we intend to be racist? No. But we are at best, if we, if we, could, we should think about racism like alcoholism, we are at best a country of recovering racists. And that's all of us, every single one of us. But here's how we approach this tactic of self-exoneration. If I am white, I tend to define racism as overtly hating people of color and either desiring to do bad things to them or actively doing bad things to them. And so I tend to define racism as discrimination, overt discrimination. If I am black or a person of color, any person of color, I tend to define racism in terms of systemic injustice, meaning you have to have power in order to be racist or to do racist things. And since I have no power, no political power or social power, to create a system that discriminates against anyone, I therefore am exonerated from the charge of racism. Both definitions of racism are incomplete. They're not wrong, they're just incomplete. Yes, hatred toward people of color is a, an expression or a function of racism, but it is not the heart or it's not, it's not the chicken of racism, it's simply one of its racist eggs. And yes, systemic oppression is one of the racist eggs of, of racism, but it is not the chicken itself. The chicken itself of racism is this, believing that race has to do with anything other than the color of skin and the texture of hair. If you believe that race goes beyond skin color and hair texture, you have some racist thoughts that you need to deal with. And may I say that we all have some racist thoughts that we need to deal with. If you think you don't, you're in denial. And the American church by and large has been in denial going all the way back to the time of slavery, all the way back to the late 1800s, people claimed not to be racist, even though they were continuing to do and say overtly racist things. Our goal should not be exoneration. Our goal should be self examination and if we start with self-examination and go before the Lord and say God would you speak to my heart and mind would you open my heart and mind would you show me would you would you just comb through my heart and would you show me and would you would you give me would you would you give me the grace to see it and to repent of it and secondly if we're willing to educate ourselves if we're willing to go through a process of reading some books of listening to some uncomfortable talks of allowing it to confront us, allowing the truth of the word of God to penetrate our souls. The Holy Spirit is able to illuminate our minds and our hearts and give us freedom. Racism is a sin. Racism is a sin. Racism in all its forms is hate. In all its forms. Uh, but it, it does not feel like hate. It's simply hate because it belittles one above another. Now, let me give you some examples. Um, if you pass by a community of color and you see 
a group of people that are living in a ghetto situation and you, you despise them in your heart, you belittle them in your heart, or if you think to yourself that if you were in their shoes, you would do better, that's racism. That's racism. If you think, if you see a particular racial community and you see their struggle and you see the disparity between resources that are available to them and resources that are available to people with other color skin and you think that part of the problem is that people themselves, that's racist. That's racist. Yeah, so Ibram Kendi, he gives us actually three different ideas when it comes to the way we think about race. First, he says there's the segregationist view. And second, he says there's the assimilationist view. And third, he says there's the anti-racist view. And the segregationist view looks at, for instance, the black community uh, in poverty in the inner city and says part of the, uh, the segregationist view is, let me tell you the problem with the black community. The problem with the black community is the black community. They're lazy, they're not good fathers, they're highly criminal, uh, they don't respect authority, uh, they kill one another, uh, they're drug addicts and they're drug dealers, and uh, they, they, they're welfare queens and all of these things, and that's the problem with the black community. And there was no government intervention, there was no systemic oppression that caused this. It's just black criminality, black fatherlessness, uh, black laziness, and so on and so forth. That's the segregationist view. It's overtly racist, actually, because it completely ignores the plight of this people group and just blames them for their own plight, okay? But then there's the assimilationist view. The assimilationist view says, yeah, the problem is twofold. One, systemic racism, and two, black people are lazy and they're criminal and they're fatherless and they're welfare queens and they're so on and so forth and so forth, okay? So the, the assimilationist view tries to see both sides of the coin, right? And put together. It, it's a little less racist than the segregationist view, but at the end of the day, it's still racist. And then the third view is the anti-racist view. And the anti-racist view looks at any community of any color and says, the situation and circumstance of that community is not because of the color of their skin. In other words, the anti-racist would look at the black community and instead of saying they're in this condition because blacks are more criminal, they have less respect for authority, um, and, and, and they're lawless, and, and they're welfare queens, and so on and so forth. The anti-racist view would say behind any racial disparity is a discriminatory policy or a set of discriminatory policies. Behind any racial disparity is a set of discriminatory policies. Why is that important? Because the anti-racist view begins with the presupposition that race is interchangeable. That if you went all the way back to the time of slavery, if you went all the way back to, let's say, the, 16, the 1619 and flipped the script, it was actually Africans that settled here and Africans sailed to Europe and kidnapped 10 million Europeans, drowned 3 million of them on the boat on the way over, enslaved the rest of them all the way across the Americas, and subjected them to 250 years of slavery plus 70 years of Jim Crow plus, yeah, they would be in exact, the white people right now would be in exactly the same situation as the, as the black people. And honestly, the black people would be in exactly the same situation as the white people today. That is, you could swap out their colors. If, if it was Chinese people that were taken, the Chinese people would be in the same condition, condition as black people are in today. That is, uh, the, the anti-racist view begins with the presupposition that the only thing race does to you is affect the color of your skin and the texture of your hair. 
And therefore, if race is interchangeable, if you can swap out races and get the same result with the same context, the same situation, then it can't be that group's fault. There's got to be some type of discriminatory policies that gives birth to this situation. Okay? Now, if you look at any group and say they're there because they are this, that's a racist idea, and you need to repent of it. Here's the problem. There's so many of these racist ideas that are embedded in our hearts and minds, and we don't even realize it. For instance, somebody asked me, isn't racism, a, I mean, wasn't slavery in a sense a good thing in the providence of God because it brought Christianity to the Africans? And that without, racist, without slavery, you might not even be a Christian right now. You might actually still be in Africa somewhere. Well, let me tell you, there's two reasons why that idea is ridiculous. First reason why it's ridiculous, by the way, and that was the logic of slavery, that it was benevolent. We're doing a good thing for these Africans because we're bringing them Christianity. Well, first, the first problem with that is that it presupposes that Christianity wasn't in Africa yet in the, year, in the 1600s. Uh, Christianity reached Africa before it reached Europe. You ever heard of Philip the Evangelist? You ever read about him in the book of Acts? What is it, Acts chapter 8? And the Ethiopian eunuch... And, he, and the gospel is preached to this Ethiopian. He goes back to Ethiopia with the gospel. Do you realize that the oldest church building in the world is in Ethiopia? The oldest church, the oldest Christian church building in the world is in Africa because the gospel reached Africa before the gospel reached Europe. So um, slavery was not a necessity to bring the gospel to the Africans. Secondly, it's morbidly Machiavellian because it suggests that God would will a major atrocity to be committed to an entire people group simply for the purpose of bringing them the gospel so that some good would come out of it. Couldn't God just will for, even if the gospel had not reached Africa yet, which it had, couldn't God just will for some missionaries to go over there and preach the gospel? Did he have to will slavery? Three million of them died in the sea on the way over. Like, did he have to will slavery? It's a morbidly Machiavellian view that actually has no witness in Scripture at all. And so um, these are racist ideas that we get in our hearts and minds that are absolutely and completely wrong, and we don't even realize they're racist. Um, and by the way, black people and white people believe these things alike. And black people and white people argue these things alike. This is all the reason why. And by the way, if you're struggling with some of the things I'm saying, like if, if they don't seem to be true to you, it's because your racist ideas have been so deeply entrenched in your heart and mind that it's going to take a period of re reflection for you to even begin to see what I'm saying here because that, it's been the same for me over the last several weeks as I've been studying my brains out and reading and reflecting and praying and crying out to God. So many of my own racist ideas have been confronted and challenged and I cannot say that I'm completely racism free. I don't even realize. There's racist things that I believe, both internalized racism about my own people and externalized racism about other people groups that I don't even realize, I believe. If you believe... Black people are the best athletes. That's a racist idea. And we don't even realize it's a racist idea because it sounds like a positive one. Well, that's black superiority in a sense. 
not realizing that that was one of the justifications for slavery, going all the way back. We see it even as early as, even earlier than Thomas Jefferson, we see it in Cotton Mather in the mid 1600s. He talked about how uh, black people, Africans were physical savants and how we were, uh, because of our physical superiority, but our intellectual and moral inferiority, uh, slavery is benevolent because it's, it's our destiny. It's what we were created for is to use all that physical strength to labor and to work and to do what the white man could never do. And so the master would sit on the porch and he would drink uh, iced tea and then he would yell at the slaves and call them lazy. <laughs> That's right. But uh, it's because of this idea of our physical prowess. Uh, but it's a lie. It's a lie. Our race does nothing for us but affect the color of our skin and the texture of our hair. That's it. It does nothing more. And if you believe it does anything more than that, if you believe it makes you stronger or weaker, more intelligent or less intelligent, more lazy or having a stronger work ethic, if you believe it makes you uh, more moral or more immoral, uh, more criminal or more law-abiding, uh, if you believe it has anything to do with any of those categories, you've got some racist thoughts. And that's a sin. And, and the reason racism is a sin is because it is heresy. It is heresy, and heresy is bad doctrine. It's untruth. Heresy is believing about God that which is not in keeping with his glory. It's, it's not just believing. Listen, heresy is not just believing something bad about us. It's believing something bad about God. It is wrong believing about God, and it robs him of his glory. Racism is heresy because it rejects the idea that all human beings were created in the image and likeness of God. Now, there were two ways that racists from the 16th century on went about this, really even before this. Uh, uh, but the, the two ways were, number one, the, the, the idea of polygenesis. So monogenesis is the idea... Uh, that we all came from Adam and Eve. That is, that there was a single human being, Adam, and from Adam, all human beings came. Now, monogenesis also translates into Darwin evolution. We won't get into that today, but there's still that monogenesis idea. Polygenesis actually is the idea that there were many Adams. There was a white Adam, and the whole white race comes from him. There was a black Adam, the whole black race comes from him. There was an Asian Adam, and then there was a, you know, whatever. Um, there, were, there were multiple genesis, and the black Adam was inferior to the white Adam. The Asian Adam was inferior to the white Adam, that the white Adam, which is the birth of all of the Europeans, basically, uh, he was the superior Adam. And so that, that whole idea was of, of polygenesis, that was one way of coming at uh, uh, racial inequalities. But then the second way of doing it was the curse of Ham. So you remember Noah's flood when uh, Noah gets to the other side and they get off the boat and, and Noah plants a vineyard and when he harvests the fruit, he makes wine and then he drinks and drinks and drinks till he gets drunk and then he's butt naked and then he falls asleep in his tent and his son Ham comes in and peeks in the tent and laughs, ah, daddy's drunk and naked and he goes and gets his brothers and they come over and they will not look upon their father's nakedness, but they cover him with the blanket. And then when he wakes up, he, he curses Ham, right? And he says, uh, well, he actually curses Ham's son, Canaan, and he says, you'll be a slave to your brothers. And so uh, the, the other way of doing this from a biblical perspective was to say black people bore the curse of Ham, and that's why they became slaves. They were destined to become slaves. Um, we have these ideas, we have these views of Africa, like uh, when they got there in the 1600s, all Africans were simply running around butt naked, throwing spears, and living in mud huts. And that's, that's historically wrong. That's anachronistic to the, to the max. Do you realize that the first 
real civilizations on this earth were in Africa. Do you realize that the, that the empire of Egypt goes back before 3000 BC and that in Egypt, uh, I, I mean, do you realize that before the 600s BC, Egypt was African-African, it was black, but it was the insurgencies of the, the Roman empire and the, well, first the, 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 yeah, the Greeks and then the Persians and then the Romans, and that's what turned uh, Egypt into uh, the, really the Middle Eastern nation that it is now, was this influence of Greeks and, and Persians and, and Romans that came in. But prior to that, the empire was African-African. It was black, black African, like King Tut was dark black with the thick matted, matted hair, not like we see in the movies where, you know, they're all white, right? Um, and so this whole idea, they didn't have clothes, they, they didn't, it was just mud huts. Do you realize that by the 1600s, more than 90% of Africa was clothed? They wore clothing, right? That's just, it just blows our minds because it goes on to this myth of, of benevolent slavery. And there was even a rewriting of history by these guys to make it look like these things were actually so, to make slavery feel more benevolent. But it's a heresy. It's a heresy. It's not just historically inaccurate, but it's heretical. Now watch this. John says, if you say you love God, but you hate your brother, you're a liar. Because you cannot love God whom you cannot see if you cannot love your brother whom you can see. If you claim to love God, but hate your brother, you're a liar. Do you realize that for much of America's history, racism was outrightly taught in churches across the country? That denominational groups wrote it into their bylaws that black people were not allowed to join. That segregation of the races was taught, even into the 1960s, it was taught as being ordained by God. That in the mid-1960s, when the, when, the, when the Supreme Court was enforcing Brown versus the Board of Education and, and the police were escorting black children into white schools, that it was church members and even pastors that were protesting and calling them racial slurs and spitting at them and saying in interviews on TV before the world that God is angry about the attempt to integrate the races and that God's judgment is going to come as a result of it. Not realizing that what the church by and large was believing was heresy and vile heresy because what they were literally saying is that these little black boys and little black girls were not created in the image and likeness of God. We are the image of God. They are not. And therefore, it could even be argued that much of American Christianity was apostate, claiming to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, but simultaneously believing the heresy of racism, which meant that one out of every nine of their brothers and sisters in this nation, they hated, while simultaneously claiming not to. That is scary. Literally convinced in their minds and hearts that they were doing God's work. <laughs> somebody was telling me that they were talking to somebody who said, uh, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to find Ku Klux Klan members and I'm just going to preach the gospel to them because they just need, they need to hear the gospel. And if they hear the gospel, they can get saved. And if they get saved, it'll change everything. 
And he went out and he found a bunch of clan members. And when he started to try to share the gospel with them, he found out they already professed to be Christians. They were in churches and their churches were believing and teaching these things as well. What I'm saying to you is that if it, is this, if it was this pervasive all the way to the 60s, and all of a sudden in the 60s, the tactic changed, you didn't see mass repentance across the country. You never saw churches across the country saying, we've been racist for all this time. It's time for us to repent. Yeah. In the meantime, what are the forms of racism that the church has attacked? Getting your Christology wrong. Not believing in the Trinity. Uh, defining salvation wrong. Do you believe in predestination or, or free will? Are you a Calvinist or are you an Arminianist? And we will argue tooth and nail yeah. about whether Calvin was right or Arminius was right, about whether God willed you to be saved before the foundation of the world or whether he honored your decision to believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Things that we can't change, which, whichever one is true, we can't change anything about it and it doesn't change anything for us. I, all I know is I believe in Jesus. Whether or not I made the decision or whether God made it for me before the foundation of the world doesn't change anything for me. But we won't stop to examine our own minds and hearts and say, is it possible that some of that overt, outwardly expressed, unapologetic racism that went into the closet in the 60s, yeah. is it possible that some of that might have escaped and made it into my heart? Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're a multi-ethnic church. And in a sense, that's a great thing because it, it, it's a powerful uh, example of what the kingdom of God looks like. Yeah. But I read an article last night that actually was, was pretty telling. Uh, do you realize that by and large in the United States of America, white people will not attend a church that has less than a 50% white majority? That what happens is when the white population of the church decreases beneath 50%, there's a mass exodus and the majority of the white people leave the church that by and large multi-ethnic churches are multi-ethnic in every, on every count except white people. I'm saying this to my white brothers and sisters that if you would stop and ask the reason why, could it be that that is a vestige of white supremacy that has continued to reside cloaked and hidden in the hearts of those who profess to be Christians across this country. That I'm only going to go to a church in which my culture is the dominant culture, in which my people are the dominant people. And to those of you who, who, who completely ignore that, who don't have that value, but you remain, and even in our own church, yeah. we have some wonderful white brothers and sisters that have remained and that have stayed, even though there's no white majority here. You are, you are making a powerful declaration to the world that you're not going to bow to that spirit of this age. Just by being a part of a church like ours, as a white person, you are making a powerful declaration to the world and are being a powerful example of what anti-racism looks like. Yeah. And so I want to commend you for that. But I also want to say to those of us who are uh, BIPOCs, Black Indigenous People of Color, which it, whatever, whether you're black or indigenous or other types of people of color, that are we willing to examine 
our own heart? Yeah. Or are we simply looking outward? Are we focused on how racist white people have been against us? Or do we stop to examine how we have been racist against ourselves and against one another? Yeah. That there's black racism against Asians, that there's Asian racism against blacks, there's black racism against other blacks, there's dark black racism against light black, there's light black racism against dark black, there's Asian racism against other Asians. There's all kinds of racism. And what we don't realize is that this is a gospel issue. That racism in any form of any kind, racism is the one thing that does not discriminate on the basis of color. Yeah. Anybody can be racist. It don't matter what your color is. If you have a color, you can be racist. If you have a race, you can be racist. Wow. And so it starts with self-examination. Do you, I, I tremble when I think that we have been partaking of the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ for years without examining ourselves wow. on this point. So shall a man examine himself. Do you realize that if there are divisions in our heart between brother and brother and sister and sister, if we divide ourselves in our mind, if there's racism that's latent in our own minds and hearts, that we are, we are not discerning the Lord's body, but yet we are partaking of the body and blood of our Lord and claiming to do so. In Paul's day in the Corinthian church, it was the division between rich and poor. Wow. They put the poor on the floor and they set a table with goblets for the rich. And Paul said, because of this, God is judging your community. Some of you have died because of this. It's the judgment of God because you have not discerned the Lord's body. Mm. But in the America of today, the division is not between rich and poor as much as it is a division of color, a division of race. We must do away with our desire for self-exoneration. Yes. And we must replace it with a deep-seated passion for self-examination. God, examine me. Examine me. See if there be any wicked way within me. Try me and know my heart. See if there be any wicked way within me and lead me in the way everlasting. Racism is the most prolific, pervasive, and profound sin of Western civilization. And it is also the most profound and egregious heresy that we have both believed and taught. And God has winked at it until now, but he winks no more. He has raised his mighty hand. And unless we repent, we will partake of the judgment of the Lord that is coming on our land because of what we have believed and done in the name of race. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to store up any more judgment against myself. I don't want to store up any more wrath against the day of judgment. Instead, I want to self-examine. I want the Holy Spirit to go through my mind and go through my heart. And some of you can't see it. You're in denial. You still, even hearing my words today, you're, you're just set on self-exoneration in your heart. But that's not me. That's not me. I, that's not me. That's not, if you're saying that's not me, that's a clear sign that it is you. You simply don't want to see it. 
If you're hearing this and you're thinking, this message, I know who this message is for. It's for John. No, it's not for John. It's for you, my friend. It's for me too. It's for each and every one of us. And, and it's not, racism is not, you're not going to find some nasty monster in your heart called racism that you can just defeat once and for all and it's over. Any more that you can, than you can find the monster of pride and defeat it once and for all and it's over. Wow. Or lust or any other sin, it's going to take daily maintenance, it's going to take a continuing humble heart before the Lord to allow the Spirit of God to prick our hearts on a continual basis. I catch myself. Oh, that was a racist thought I just had. I catch myself even to this day. And you know what? I probably will for many years to come. But the key, and this is, this is the beautiful thing about it. It's not, it's not about instant perfection, just like with any sin. Yeah. It's simply about being fully committed to being clean before God in this area of your life. It's about making a decision. God, whatever it takes. This is, God is putting, see, this is not just a political thing. This has nothing to do with the Black Lives Matter movement. This doesn't even have to do with George Floyd. This has to do with God putting his finger on this thing that we have believed in our hearts, that we have spoken with our mouth, that we have condoned with our actions, and he's putting his finger on it and saying, no more, I'm requiring you to repent right now. And if you and I can hear his voice and harden not our hearts, the Holy Spirit is going to bring revelation. The Holy Spirit is going to bring understanding. And the Holy Spirit is going to bring freedom. I want you to bow your heads with me. I'm going to invite my wife, baby, would you come? I want you to bow your heads with me right now. And I want us to pray. And I'm going to invite, first I'm going to say a prayer. And then I'm going to invite you to repeat this prayer after me. Hmm. Because I believe the sin, of racism, the sin of racism really is the one sin hmm. that we have never repented of. Jesus. Can you think of one time in your... I think most believers cannot think of one time in their lives hmm. in which they repented of the sin of racism. Jesus, Jesus. We know to repent of lust. We don't know to repent of racism. Jesus. We know to repent of, of, of pride or anger outbursts. We don't know to repent of racism. Hmm. But God is putting his finger on this thing right now. And yes, I know there's more to it. I know that there is systemic racism and I know there is injustice yes, in the world. And yes. we're going to address that too. We're not exonerating that. Yeah. I'm yeah. simply saying today, right now, mm -hmm. what the Holy Spirit is putting his finger on hmm. is you and me. Yeah. You and me. Let's pray. Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open every heart and that you would soften every heart, that you would remove the heart of stone and replace it with the heart of flesh. Holy Spirit, the words that I've spoken will fall to the ground without your convicting power. Yeah. Only you can convict our hearts, open our minds, and expose our sin. Lord, unless you expose it, we cannot see it. Our sin cannot be detected, only revealed. And so, Holy Spirit, at this moment, I ask you to reveal, to make it seen, and to make it known. Now, right now, under the sound of my voice, if you sense that convicting power of the Holy Spirit working on you, and your heart is opening, and you're saying yes, 
I want you to repeat this prayer after me. Father, Father, I come to you. I come to you. In the name of your son, in Jesus the, Christ. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ. My Lord. My Lord. I thank you. I thank you. That you sent your son. That you sent your son. To die for my sin. To die for my sin. I thank you. I thank you. That you raised him from the dead. That you raised him from the dead. For my justification. For my justification. And I thank you. And I thank you. That you sat him at your right hand. That you sat him at your right hand. For my vindication. For my vindication. Today. Today. I believe in him. I believe in him. In the sacrifice that he made. In the sacrifice that he made. But in believing. But in believing. I come to you today. I come to you today. To repent. To repent. Of my sin. Of my sin. I acknowledge. I acknowledge. That I have believed a lie. That I have believed a lie. That I have harbored racist thoughts. That I have harbored racist thoughts. That I have spoken racist words. That I have spoken racist words. That I have believed racist lies. That I have believed racist lies. To the extent that I have done so. To the extent that I have done so. I have often not even been aware. I have often not even been aware. And even now. And even now. I am not fully aware. I'm, I am not fully aware. Of the lies that I have believed. Of the lies that I have believed. About your own sons and daughters. About your own sons and daughters. Who look different from me. Who look different than me. But I acknowledge. But I acknowledge. That your word is true. That your word is true. That if I say I have no sin. That if I say I have no sin. I make you to be a liar. I make you to be a liar. But today I say. But today I say. I acknowledge my sin. I acknowledge my sin. I sorrow for what it has caused me to believe and do. I have sorrowed for what it has caused me to think and do. To believe and do. To believe and do. I renounce it. I renounce it. I reject it. I reject it. And I receive your truth in my heart. And I receive your truth in my heart. That red and yellow, black and white. That red and yellow, black and white. We are all precious in your sight. We are all precious in your sight. Help me, Lord. Help me, Lord. By the power of the Holy Spirit. By the power of the Holy Spirit. To see the world with those eyes. To see the world with those eyes. And convict me, Lord. And convict me, Lord. Whenever I fail to do so. Whenever I fail to do so. I trust you for my salvation. I trust you for my salvation. I trust you for my healing. I trust you for my healing. For my freedom. For my freedom. And my deliverance. And my deliverance. And may this be the beginning. And may this be the beginning. Of a powerful work. Of a powerful work. That you would do in this nation. That you would do in this nation. As you confront the lie of racism. As you confront the lie of racism. And break it off of our nation. And break it off of our nation. In Jesus' mighty name. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen.